listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. This morning I am reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of the Lord. So my daughter and I have been working on this little uh, model. It's a 112th scale model of the Mandalorian from the TV show, The Mandalorian. And he's got this shiny uh, Beskar armor. Uh, if you don't know what that is, it's nerd talk for really cool. Um, so we're working on this model, and, and you know, they come, a little parts and pieces are made out of plastic, but it's got this shiny silver plating on it, and so you cut them off of the little trees that they come on, and then you, you sand it down so it's good, and it's like, oh no, it was shiny, but now it's dull, we need paint for this to, to touch it up, because you don't want, you know, dull spots on your shiny armor, so we go to the hobby store, beautiful place, I love going, we go to the hobby store to, uh, to pick out some paints, and we're, we're like, okay, something shiny metal is the color we're looking for, aluminum, probably, We'll be good. So we go to the paint store, we get into the, the aisle with all of the paints, and I'm in front of all of the shiny, shiny silver ones, uh, and it's, it says aluminum. So it's like, I'm in the Canadian aisle, but it doesn't matter. Um, so aluminum, and uh, I look at it there, and like, I think that's the right color, but wait. Do you know how many different aluminums there are when it comes to paint? Like, I wrote them all down. There's aluminum, duraluminum, dark aluminum, white aluminum, semi-matte aluminum, dull aluminum, um, which is mixed in with the chrome steel, magnesium silver, and gunmetal gray. And so we're, we, we brought one of the plastic pieces with us, and we're looking at all this paint going, okay, which, which, one, like which one matches? Um, and I wanted to just grab aluminum and take it and go, because I would rather just, you know, you're only out $3.99 if you get the wrong one, and then you get to go back to the hobby store again. Um, but my daughter was like, no, 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 we gotta pick the right one. So we have to test them and figure out which one's the right one. So we started lining up bottles and opening them. Squeeze the little bottle. This is okay, they were okay with that. This, they were on board with it. it was testing to see if, okay, the, the label says aluminum, but every bottle looks the same, so what's really inside? And we squeeze it, and okay, this one looks at duraluminum. Or whatever. We work our way down the line and, and pick the one that, that matches. Right, you understand how this sort of thing works when you're, you're trying to test something to find out, you know, does it, really, does it really match what it says it is, right? You go to the store, you try on some clothes, you gotta try them on because does, does it actually match the size that it says that it is? You're playing with these paints, do they really, is what's on the, the label, on the bottle, actually reflective of what's inside. The only way to find out is to test it. Now, we didn't, you know, we didn't go to like, the extremes of testing the paint colors and like, spraying them onto the pieces or anything to, to get an exact match, because again, it's $3.99 and it doesn't really matter. Uh, you, you only go to the extremes of like, a really big test if the thing you're trying to find out if it's real or not is a really big thing, if it's really important, if it's something that like, you, know, you need to know for sure 
if what's being said about this thing is actually true. That's what's happening in Matthew chapter 4. We've been going through Matthew, the first few chapters here, the last couple of weeks in this season of Lent, um, seeing how Jesus is the fulfillment. He is what has been promised to us from the Old Testament. And as we've gotten to Matthew chapter 4, we're, we're moving into this section now where Jesus, who's been presented to us as the fulfillment of all these promises, is, well, we're going to put him to the test, squeeze the bottle. Is he really who he says he is? You know, Matthew has introduced him as the redeemer, the king, the rescuer. Here's his qualifications. But really, like, prove it. Prove it. Because you can write anything you want on a bottle. But what counts is what's inside. So where we're going in Matthew chapter 4 here, that's where we pick it up. This is the trial, the test of the Son, the Son of God. Uh, okay, we see what the label says, but what's, you know, what's really in there? What kind of a son are we talking about here? So let's jump into the story. Uh, if you've grabbed one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, this is on page 961, the Gospel according to St. Matthew, uh, beginning in chapter 4, verse... One. So it starts out, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, we're not native first century Jewish readers, so there's a lot of important stuff in this verse that maybe doesn't jump out to us the way that it should, so we're going to slow down for a little bit to take a look at it. You can start with the connecting word that begins the story, the word then. I mean, you see it, that's a temporal word. That's a time sequence word. So then implies that this happened right after something that came just before it. I, I went to seminary where they taught us that kind of stuff. Uh, that, that, that chapter 4 verse 1 follows chapter 3 verse 17. Something happens significant in the paragraph before and then Jesus is led out into the wilderness, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. So let's back up a little bit. Chapter 3, Pastor Jeff walked us through this last week, but we only have to go back one verse to find out, you know, kind of see the connection of what Matthew is trying to do here in this story, the way he's telling the story. Verse 17, and behold, chapter 3, verse 17, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, we've got to slow down to hear what's being said there. This is my beloved son, the son of God. That's a phrase that for us resonates as sort of a divine title, right? Oh yeah, of course, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God. We're clear on that. But that's not the resonance that a first century Jewish reader would see or hear encountering this story for the first time. That phrase, son of God, to their ears, the phrase son of God means Israel. You are my beloved son. That's what God says about Israel as a whole, his people. Sometimes he says it more specifically about the king of Israel. You are my son. Sometimes he says it more specifically still about the Messiah. Uh, that's the title for the anointed one, the one who's going to come and save, deliver the people of Israel once and for all. So a 
first century Jewish audience hears Jesus being called by God the Son of God. And immediately, like, the the echoes are coming through the story of, no, that's the title for Israel. That's the title for the king. That's That's the Messiah. And then chapter 4, verse 1, he's led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness. First century reader immediately sees what Matthew is trying to say. This sounds a lot like the story of Israel. You are my beloved son. That's what God says about Israel. Led by the Spirit. That's true of Israel. Into the wilderness. That's True of Israel, chosen by God, driven out into the desert, tested, according to Moses, you know, the greatest sermon Moses ever preached in Deuteronomy 6 and 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, it's a long one, Uh, led out into the desert in order to be tested, to see what's in their hearts. So you're reading, you're hearing this story for the first time, you're like, then, so this this guy Jesus has just been called the Son of God, now he's being led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, he's going to be tempted, tested. This sounds a lot like Israel. Like, we're immediately clear on what Matthew is trying to do here. He is setting up Jesus as a new Israel. Jesus is being presented here by Matthew as a new Israel. Israel was led into the wilderness. Jesus is led into the wilderness. Israel was tested in the wilderness. Jesus is being tested in the wilderness. Israel failed in the wilderness. Jesus is going to, well, we have to read on. But before we read on, look at, look at verse 1 again. So, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, if we, if we stopped reading right there, we would probably take that word tempted and translate it as tested. Because in Greek, it's the same word, tempted and tested. And, and whatever story that word finds itself in tells you whether or not you translate it as a test or as a temptation. If the, test is, or if the story is about trying to discover uh, the true nature or character or quality of a thing, then you're testing it. Uh, you're applying stress to it in order to find out what it's made of. This is like the, you know, the guy who builds a, a fence, and then to find out if it's going to stand up, he just grabs it and like shakes it, like, right? It's good. You put together a dresser, and you jump on it to see if it's going to stay up, right? It's good. Nobody does that? Anyway, uh, you, you write code, you write your program, and you're going to subject it to the maximum use case scenario you can to find out what it's made of, if it's going to hold up. You test it. Now, test and temptation, if the story is more along the lines of not trying to see what's there, but trying to entice somebody into inappropriate or improper or sinful behavior, then you translate the word tempt or tempting. Like it's, you know, the middle of Lent, and you're like, hey, honey, I'm having chocolate for breakfast. Would you like some? That's not a test. That's a temptation. Okay, so you see the difference, uh, but the reason it's the same word in Greek is because there's just a lot of overlap in the way these these things work. Um, Think of it like when you were in school. You're in a class, whatever your worst subject was, uh, history or something like that, midterms come up. Teacher wants to test you to find out the character, the quality of your knowledge of the subject that he or she is teaching you. So they give you a test. 
Okay, we're going to reveal character. We're going to reveal quality. But you are looking at that test and thinking, I can't pass it, so you're tempted, you're enticed towards improper behavior to kind of figure out a way to pass the test. You see how tempting and testing overlap so much. That's what's happening here. Right? In his baptism, God has just declared that Jesus is the Son of God, and the Spirit of God has come down onto Jesus. Now the Spirit of God is leading Jesus into the wilderness, into the desert for the express purpose of testing him. Okay, you say, we say, I mean, you are the Son of God. Now let's squeeze that bottle and find out. Apply some stress. Let's see what he's really made of. It's the trial of the Son. But in that trial, the devil, the slanderer, the accuser, uh, he's called by all sorts of different names in this passage, uh, he takes advantage of the situation to try to tempt Jesus, to entice him into taking advantage of his privileges as the Son of God. This is the story of Israel, chosen by God. God told Moses, you know, go to Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say, let my son go so that he may serve me. And then to find out what kind of a son Israel is going to be, they are led out of Egypt. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea. It's a baptism of sorts. And they're taken into the wilderness. It's that place where they would, they would be forced to rely completely on God to care for them. A place where they would be stressed, where their faith would be put to the test. A place where the people of Israel would be tested to prove what kind of a son are you going to be? So they led into the wilderness, the place where they failed. Um, you may not be familiar with the story, but they're led out into the wilderness. They're given water uh, miraculously to drink. Water from bitter streams becomes pure uh, just and clear just for their drinking. They're, they're given bread. It's called manna. Falls down from heaven every night, every morning with the dew raining down on them in the night. But you give that only a year or two, and the people start complaining. It's recorded in Numbers 11. They've had enough of the wilderness test, enough of the stress, and are looking back longingly on Egypt. Numbers 11 records the, the people complaining like this. Uh, it said, oh, oh, that we had meat to eat. I mean, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, and the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. Now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Oh, man, you see what the stress has revealed. They're saying, you put it another way, they're saying, do you remember slavery? Wasn't that awesome? We had all the food we wanted, and we didn't have to pay anything for it. Now all we have is this wretched gift from God to look up that keeps showing up every day without us having to work for it. Ugh. And it's only a few verses later, uh, they've had enough, so much so that when they're given the opportunity to go into the land that God promised them, he led them out of Egypt to this land, and they look at it and go, time for a vote of no confidence in Moses. Uh, let's elect a new leader, one who wants to go to Egypt. They're like, wagons east, <laughs> we're going back home. We don't want any of this. 
See, when Israel, the, the son of God, God said of them, you are my son, when they are put to the test, when they are stressed in the desert to show their character and qualifications, to show what kind of a son they're going to be, faithful or not, they break under the strain. So if Jesus in this story is being set up as a new Israel, well, how is he going to respond? What about Jesus? All right, back to the story. Verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. You may read that verse and go, is that really necessary to tell us? Um, It's kind of like a duh. Uh, But there's a whole lot that's buried within this one verse, resonances that maybe we don't get. At first, 40 days and 40 nights is a very intentional number. Uh, in the Jewish imagination, 40 days is considered uh, enough, enough time. If, if there's something you need to do or some project you need to accomplish or some goal you need to meet, 40 days is how long it takes. It's kind of like us saying, well, you know, give it a month. Right? You go see your doctor, he's like, let's try some new medication, give it a month, we'll see how you feel then. Or you just went through a breakup and your friend is telling you, like, look, you'll get over it, uh, just give it a month. Right? Or, or you're trying to establish a new habit, and you're like, all right, I'm just going to do this for a month, give it a month, and let's see where we are. So in the Jewish imagination, they wouldn't say give it a month, they'd say give it 40 days. 40 days is enough time for significant things to happen. And... One way this resonates in the imagination. The second is 40 days and 40 nights. That phrase intentionally echoes the language of testing and trial from the Old Testament, from all of the Old Testament stories. 40 days and 40 nights, rain falls on the earth, and Noah is in the ark. For 40 days and 40 nights, Moses fasts on the mountain before receiving the law, the word of God. For 40 years, again, enough time, this time in years, for 40 years, Israel wanders in the wilderness. 40 days, 40 nights shows up over and over and over again. You can see the repetition as you read through the Old Testament. For for the Spirit of God to lead Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting, that's not accidental. That's an intentional fulfillment of the pattern, of the echo of Scripture, recycling back and again and again. So in just these two verses, coming right off of the heels of chapter 3, verse 17, Matthew is claiming that Jesus is a new Israel, a new Moses, just as Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before receiving uh, the, the word of God and kind of starting out into this new era, Jesus is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights before entering into his ministry. Jesus is a new Israel, a new Moses, a new son of God, And if you're reading this as a first century Jew, you're reading this going, and perhaps maybe one who wouldn't fail, where every other chosen one before has failed. So let's read on. Uh, Verse 3. 
The temptation begins in earnest. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, the tempter, he's also referred to as uh, the accuser, the adversary. Jesus calls him by a title, the Satan, the adversary. Uh, All these different names show up in these 11 verses. Uh, But this is the, I'm not sure the right word for it, the character, the, the force of evil that appears in Matthew as a very real and very powerful rival to Jesus. The one whose authority is already over all of the earth, and it's threatened by Jesus' arrival and Jesus beginning to establish this new kingdom. Uh, the, the slanderer, the Satan, is like the, the schoolyard bully, you know, getting into someone's face and saying, hey, this is my turf. We're going to do it my way. So the Satan, the devil, uh, comes to Jesus and says in verse 3, well, if if you are the son of God, well, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, center in on the word uh, if at the beginning of the sentence. The, the devil, the slanderer, is not implying, he's not trying to get Jesus to question if he is the son of God. Like, if you are really the son of God, why don't you prove it? That's, that's not what he's saying. Uh, what he's trying to get Jesus to do is to reflect on, perhaps deviate somewhat, from what kind of son he's going to be. What what the meaning of the son of God. What kind of son are you going to be? Which is exactly the, the trial, the test that the Spirit of God has in mind when he leads Jesus up into the wilderness. It's a test of his character, his qualifications. What kind of a son will you be? What kind of a son are you? Of course, asking the question, what kind of a son are you? That's just the flip side of the opposite question. What kind of father do you think you have? What kind of a father is God? So, Uh, The devil, the the slanderer, comes to Jesus and subtly begins to insinuate that, you know, being the son of the living God, I mean, surely means that Jesus has power. He doesn't just have the power, but has the right to satisfy his own legitimate physical needs. You can almost hear the honey dripping off of his tongue. Surely your father doesn't want you to suffer. He wouldn't want to see you in this this state, deprived, emaciated, weak. How are you going to serve him if you're like this? This isn't how you serve. He gave you power, you know. You're a son. Don't you deserve to have access to some of that power? Don't you deserve to have his blessing? You know, if he were a, if he were a good father, he would have already taken care of your needs before you even had to ask. Why are you letting yourself suffer like this? 
you know, maybe, maybe, maybe your father wants you to learn to provide for yourself. Every son has to grow up someday. Maybe he wants you to exercise your power to provide. Maybe he wants you to turn these stones into bread. There's nothing wrong with being hungry and providing for yourself. There's nothing wrong. Now, there are ironies all throughout this passage. Uh, of course, ironies back with the, the parallel story of Israel. Jesus is being tempted and tested after 40 days and, and 40 nights of fasting. So he's famished, he's weak, but the Spirit led him into this place, and, and he knows that this is his test, and he knows who he is, that he's the new Israel, that his calling is to succeed where Israel failed, but it's, it's so much harder for him than it was for them, at least when they were tempted and tested, their stomachs were full. <laughs> they weren't going hungry. They'd had manna for 40 years. For 40 days, he's eaten nothing. I mean, in that state, if you squint, every rock looks like a croissant, right? And this is the moment when the accuser comes in and says, you know, if you just snap your fingers... You can make it so. And it's not that it's necessarily wrong for Jesus to use his power as God to create food. He's going to do it in just a few chapters with the loaves and the fishes, in which he is going to address the legitimate physical needs of himself and those around him through an exercise of divine power. If it's not wrong then, why is it wrong here? Is it wrong just because it's the the Satan that is tempting him to do it? Well, there's more to it than that, Uh, because the temptation here is not about just exercising power, whether or not, when or not, is it appropriate to exercise power to turn stones into bread. The temptation here is about exercising power or authority in order to bypass the reason you have that power or authority. It makes me think back to uh, when I was younger, four younger brothers at home, and I was appointed babysitter over my brothers. Uh, my parents would say, all right, Joey, you are in charge. We want you to feed everyone dinner, uh, clean up the kitchen, watch a movie, make sure everybody goes to bed at the same time or at, at a decent time. Make sure everyone goes to bed at a decent time, and then we'll be, we'll be home at 11 or something like that. And what I hear is, guess what, Joey? You're in charge, and you have the power to grant and withhold. You have the power to dictate and to command. You have the power to run the house as you think it should be run. And so, Tony, make dinner. Jimmy, clean the kitchen. Kevin, Eric, go to bed so we can watch a movie. I was given, granted the power and the authority in order to manage the household the way my parents would, and I immediately used the power and the authority in order to, to... run it the way I would. I use what I'm given for the exact opposite reason of why I've been given it. And you have all done the same thing. That's the temptation that is in view here. The the devil is telling Jesus, you know, a good and loving father wouldn't want you to suffer. Not when you could so easily relieve your suffering. He's given you the power to do it. Well, how does Jesus respond? So verse 4, but he, that's Jesus, answered, 
It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, it's tempting at first glance at that verse to, to look at it and say, oh yeah, okay, so Jesus uh, went back to the Old Testament and he pulled out kind of a saying and said, well, look, here's the deal. We're told you're not supposed to live by just bread. So you live instead on every word that comes from God's mouth. So I'm, I'm going to say no. But there's, there's a whole, again, there's a whole lot more, more resonance going into just this one quotation. In effect, what, what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you know, I remember a sermon that Moses preached, his greatest sermon at the end of his life, after 40 years of wandering in the desert. It's like, I can relate to that part. After wandering in the desert, Moses tells everyone, he sits them all down and says, God led us into the wilderness to test us. Moses told everyone, God kept us in the wilderness to humble us in order to know what was in our hearts, to know if we would keep his commandments or not. That's why we've been here these 40 years. He let us get hungry so that he could be the one to feed us with manna. And Moses says all of this to make a point. God wanted them to learn that human beings don't live by bread alone, but everyone lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And there's, you don't live out here in the desert by what you are able to scrape together for yourself. You don't live if you're one of my people. If you are my son, Israel, you don't live by what you are able to accomplish for yourself. You live by everything that comes from me, every word, all things that come from God. That's what you live on. And in that sermon, Moses says, hey, for 40 years, we were taught this lesson, that it was a lesson about discipline, that the way a father disciplines his son to teach him the right way to live, that's how God disciplines his son. So, nice try, Satan. But bread isn't the most important thing right now. God says I'm his son. And he's a good father. And if he led me here to be tested... I can wait. See, Jesus' response, quoting this verse from Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy 8, actually all three of his responses back to Satan all come from that same sermon, chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Uh, Him quoting from this section as they're coming out of the 40 years in the desert, going into the promised land, opening up a new era of what God is doing in the world— Responding from that sermon shows that Jesus clearly understands exactly who he is and what role God is calling him to fulfill. He knows his vocation, his calling. He clearly understands what kind of son of God he's called to be. Not the kind that abuses authority for his own gain, not the kind of son of an authority figure that uses the power, in, the power of their, their father in triumphalistic or self-aggrandizing ways. Not the kind of son who thinks being a son is something you take advantage of in order to get things for yourself. Not, not the kind of son who thinks that because he's the son, the father owes him happiness or a pain-free life, or, you know, a get-out-of-hard-things-free card. He knows he's called to be the kind of son who knows this is what I'm here for. 
to be the new Israel and live that out, to succeed where Israel failed. Now, again, there's a, there's a lot in just these first four verses. I mean, all, all 11 of this story, there's just a ton of resonance in here. But it, we tend to read these first four verses maybe on a little bit more of a superficial uh, level, right? Like, um, so, hey, uh, Jesus responds to the devil with Scripture, key idea. Uh, Jesus beats up the, the devil with Scripture. We beat up the devil with Scripture, right? Jesus resists temptation by quoting the Bible. We resist temptation by quoting the Bible. And that's true. I'm not discounting that. We, one of the ways that we resist the temptation to uh, disbelieve who God is is by reminding ourselves of who God is from Scripture, for sure. But there's a whole lot more going on in these 11 verses in this temptation narrative than just a superficial uh, use the Bible uh, to not sin as much. There's a lot more going on here. There's actually, well, at least three sort of huge theological applications that we draw from this narrative. And I don't have time to do all three today, but since we're taking three Sundays to do all three temptations, we're just going to take one of these applications each week, one on the the nature of evil, one on the nature of obedience, and then today on the nature of humanity, who Jesus is. So this week, we're going to focus in on just one sort of huge theological application for us, and it's this. The temptation narrative as a whole teaches us that Jesus fulfills, finally fulfills, what it means to be a really and truly human. Okay, stay with me. Jesus fulfills what it means to be really and truly human for the first time. If we were reading this story in Luke's narrative, it's a little bit different. So Luke has the baptism where God says to Jesus, you are the son of God. You are my son. But then before he gets to the trial where we prove the character of this son, he inserts a genealogy. It says, Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of, and the son of, and the son of, and he goes all the way up to Adam, the son of God. So you see what he's doing here, what Luke's doing, he's bringing out even more resonances with the whole biblical story. He's saying Jesus is the son of God. Adam is the son of God. Now the son of God is being tested. This Jesus is not just a new Israel or a new Moses. He's a new Adam. He's a new humanity. Jesus in the temptation narrative shows us that he is living a, I want to say a new way to be human, but it's actually the way humans were supposed to be. He's living humanity, but finally right. Adam and Eve, the first human beings, when they were tempted, failed. Man does not live by fruit alone. They didn't know that yet. Well, they they knew it. They just didn't obey it. So God began a plan to work to set the world back right, to set humanity back right, and he chose Noah, and Noah failed. Then he chose Abraham, and Abraham failed. And then he chose Moses, and Moses failed. He chose Israel. Israel failed. Within Israel, he chose Saul. Saul failed. He chose David. David failed. He chose Solomon. Solomon failed. Finally, he chose himself and sent his son and sent Jesus. And Jesus didn't fail. 
in the temptation, in the wilderness, in the desert, when he was emaciated and in the weakest state possible, when the temptation was the strongest, Jesus succeeded where everyone else failed. And that means that God's promise to bring the world back right is now beginning to be fulfilled, finally fulfilled in Jesus, the first real and true and and right human, the one who has actually lived what humanity is supposed to be. So if God's plan to set the world back right and set each of us back right If that begins in Jesus, then the only way for you and I to become or begin to become the real, true, genuine humanity that God designed us and created us to be is if we are somehow in Jesus. We are in Him and His new humanity. That's why over and over again, the New Testament authors keep saying, like, if you are in Jesus, you are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. You are finally beginning to participate in humanity as it was supposed to be. Real, true, right human living. And like Jesus, you can begin to say and and mean it. Nice try, Satan, but I know my father. I know what I am. And if he led me here, he is good and I can wait. But of course, if you are in Jesus and you are part of that new, real, true, genuine humanity, then you can, you can resist the temptation that what one author calls, calls the, the soupy fog of confusion and disorientation and doubt that the devil conjures around you in order to get you to, uh, to, to disbelieve who you are and who God has said he is. Like you're wandering in pea soup. If you are in Jesus, then you are part of that new, real, true humanity. And even if you can't or don't or don't want to resist the temptations to turn whatever your stones are into bread, that doesn't change the fact that being in Jesus means not only are you in his life, you are also in his death which means his death has already forgiven and carried away every failure you bring. Every time you don't resist temptation, every time you tell yourself, you know, the fastest way to get rid of temptation is just give in to it. Every time this happens, it is already wrapped up in the death of Jesus. Every time you've tried to use your power to take a shortcut or to exploit someone else or use your authority to get things to go your way or try to get the good things God created for you to enjoy, but you don't want to wait or you don't want to enjoy them in the right way, all of that is already wrapped up in the death of Jesus and removed from you. If you are in his life, you are in his death. And you are now real true, genuinely human with a brand new calling to reflect the God in whose image you are made, doing so in worship on the one hand and in service or mission on the other by following this Jesus. This, this temptation narrative, the the testing of Jesus in the wilderness, what I'm calling the trial of the sun. 
This is designed by God to prove that what's on the inside matches the label. That what we say, what we mean when we say, this man is the son of God, is true. Not a son of God like Adam who failed, like Moses who failed, like Israel who failed. But the true son, and the only way to find out because the true son is to put him to the test, squeeze the bottle and see what comes out, test him. And we're already getting hints from Matthew that when you test this son, you find out he is the true one, the one who resists the power to take a shortcut through the test that God had created him, the one who resists the temptation to use his power to skip over the whole reason that he came. And Matthew is going to take this testing theme all the way through to the very end where this exact same taunt, if you are the son of God, is hurled at Jesus as he hangs on the cross. If you're really the son of God, prove it. Come down from there. How can we believe you're the son of God if you don't have the power to circumvent your own suffering. But of course, if Jesus had summoned a legion of angels to come to him and rescue him, he would have used his authority as the Son of God to circumvent the very reason for which he came and would have undone the whole reason he had any of that authority and power in the first place. And instead, this, the Son of God suffers on the cross and resists temptation in the place of all of us who cannot. And irony of ironies, the Son of God who starved in the wilderness becomes the bread of life to all those who will come to him, who are hungry. What kind of son is this man? And if we're in him, what kind of sons are we? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are holy, and your name is holy, and you are to be praised everywhere at all times by all peoples. We ask that your kingdom and your rule would come to us and would exist here on earth and in us as it does already in heaven. Give us today our daily bread whether by that we mean the food that we need to survive or the words from your lips that, that touch the deepest parts of who we are, give us today our daily bread and lead us not into temptation. Do not try us, Lord. We are afraid if you try us that what would come out of us would prove that we do not trust you as much as we should. We do not lean on you or rely on you as wholeheartedly as you call us to. So do not test us. But as you, when you do, Lead us to Jesus. And deliver us from evil, Father, we pray, from every evil. And grant us peace in our days. In your mercy, keep us free from sin. And deliver us from all anxieties as we await the blessed hope of the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For the kingdom and the power and the glory belong to him. And we are his. And so in his name we pray, amen.